Alrighty. Uh, we are on. Welcome back, everybody, for episode 10 of the Weekly Anabolic. This week we have our guest, Mr. Nick Gloff, our coach, friend, mentor, professor, anything you want to hand him. Uh, he is here with us today to give us some some great knowledge. Um, Nick, how are you doing? Doing just fine. I'm here. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Long awaited, apparently. Yes. Yes. We've uh, we've spread your name far and wide through this prod- podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually brought up our special guest. Not I haven't told anyone, but there's actually some people that are like, oh, who's a special guest? And I'm like, ah, I can't tell you. Yeah. So we do have some people. There you waiting. go. The, the much-awaited guest for yes. episode 10. Nick, um, if you'd like, you want to give the people a little bit of a background on who you are, what you do, how you got where you are, kind of what's oh. going on for you. Sure. Um, the name is Nick Loff. I'm a bodybuilding coach. I work for Team Camp Jansen um, with and under uh, Matt Jansen, uh, Matt Berzicott, uh, IFPB Pro, Nadia, uh, uh, Samanovich, and Justin Jacoby. Um, we work as a team. Uh, sponsored athlete with uh, Raw Nutrition and Revive. Um, let's see, went to school for exercise science, got a double major in exercise science and kinesiology with a minor in biology. Worked in a biomechanics lab for two years. Um, uh, prescript level one coach. All, all this stuff, but really the only thing that matters is, you know, I'm here, I'm here to say words, and that's really going to be it. <laughs> as far as everything else is concerned, you can find out everything you want to know about me through just, I mean, well, these guys apparently, because they, they talk a whole lot about me. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, just, just find me on Instagram. It's my name, Nick Gloff, just really easy, straight, at Nick Gloff, and you'll just see everything that I do. Um get some glimpses into the person that I am just by the way I write, the way I speak, the way I present information. And from there, if you want to get to know me any better, take it from these guys, you just start working with me. You'll, you'll get to know me pretty well. So yeah, yeah, that's really about it. I'm not going to go too in depth about my, my base history and all that. I've been on plenty enough podcasts that I've gone full on in depth and talked for hours about who yeah. I <laughs> So if you're interested in hearing anything about who I am and all the details about that, where I came from, the, the upbringing and everything that led me right to this spot where I am right now, you're welcome to listen to any of those other ones to get the catch up because we do not have that kind of time today. That's right. So, <laughs> we got other stuff to get into today. Yeah. All right. Uh, so with, uh, with the thought of time, we'll, we'll get right into... Uh, some questions we have for you. Um, so I want to go over a bunch of programming stuff with you today and uh, kind of get where, where your head is at with, with programming somebody that comes to you and why you do what you do um, and, and kind of your approach. Um, so first off, when when someone shows up to be coached by you and they've gone through all of their you know preliminary stuff with you and you're writing their first block, what yep. is generally your first intent with the initial block um, that you're writing for them? In most cases, when somebody's coming fresh to me, at, th- at this point, things are starting to change slightly because people are coming to me already knowing what I do and the kind of programming that I do actually write. So 
the trend is changing somewhat, but originally, and in most cases, and for most people, when they first sign up to get a coach, especially somebody that's more in my realm of coaching and the philosophy of it, they come with a whole bunch, like way too much volume that's really doing nothing but making a good excuse for them not to push as hard as they could on the volume that they actually do in the first place and just doing way too many exercises, not doing them very well to start with. The execution of them isn't great. The stacking of them isn't great. The overall programming in any one single session isn't great. It's all just kind of haphazard thrown together as whatever it is that you can do or figure out on the day. When you walk into the gym and you see a couple machines are open, you choose that you're going to do those. Is basically what most people end up walking in with. Did we lose Brady? No. We did not. I have Brady. Okay. I think we're still here. Yeah, uh, you're, both of you guys are flashing in and out of my screen. Um, oh. <laughs> I think the difficulties continue. Yeah, it's uh, probably going to be happening all throughout the podcast, <laughs> too. So, mandatory right. coffee break. Yeah. I'll just have to not intently lock eyes with any of you. Yeah. Yes. I can easily back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in most cases, people show up to me that way. They're just... The plan isn't solidified, and if it is solidified, it's usually not very well built to start with. It's overdoing it on the volume side of things, underdoing it on the intensity side of things, underdoing it on the attention to detail side of things, and everything that follows in suit from that. So in the first block that I make for somebody, the, the real intent is learning mm -hmm. as opposed to actually trying to get the most like optimized training cycle possible out of them. In, in the learning process, I'm trying to get them to do base patterns. The majority of everything that you do is a base pattern. So it's all really basic compound exercises to start with, with all of the accessory type movements that are going to be staples no matter what time of year, all the time for specific body parts that really don't get hit very well with compound movements. So calves, abs, side delts, rear delts arms, stuff like that, that is, can only get so much from doing the base patterns and doing a, lar a larger, larger grouping of body parts in every session, which is typically what I program like for most people. With that in mind, you're not going to get everything that you need to for bodybuilding from just doing compound exercises only, unless you're like a completely ranked beginner. And in some cases I do have those and that's the, the route that I do go. Um, so when people come to me to start with, looking at trying to learn first how to move their body. So that's the biggest thing to start with is just going and looking at every sing almost every single set of every single exercise that they ever do in every training session for a period of a couple of weeks. Usually it's every single thing that they do. If they're moving their body, I'm seeing it for the first month. And then beyond that point, it's as needed. But the whole intent uh, behind that is to make sure that I see the movement patterns. I see what their intent of movement is. I keep probing them with questions of how it is that it feels, what they're thinking about, what cues they're using, what the internal feel is like, the external feel is like, trying to look at all of the things that every joint in the system that is trying to do something for primary movement and all the things that are supposed to be secondary stabilizing or setting bases in other places against other surfaces 
everything possible that you could be looking for, I'm trying to find so that I can iron out exactly the things, the root of some issues that are going to be presenting in the majority of all movements that follow. So mm-hmm. most people that come in don't have really great access to mobility or stability at their hip, really at all. Most people suck at the hip. Most people, as a result of sucking at the hip, they suck at the ankle. So that's a feed forward feedback where one affects the other and one affects the other and one affects the other in a circle. So they just keep on screwing with the same system over and over and over again in both directions. And that has its feedback into the lumbopelvis, the lower back region that has uh, carry over upwards into the thoracic spine, the cervical spine, where the rib cage is set, how the rib cage dynamic works, how their breathing works, how their gait cycle works, how they're actually able to move their, their shoulders, mostly independently of rib cage travel or movement. Do you compensate trying to actually get the glenohumeral joint to work the way it's supposed to independently of the shoulder blade actually going anywhere and then also trying to integrate all of these things back into each other for larger compound movements where they're necessary, but gaining the ability to dissociate them as it's necessary also, learning how to put them all together in an integrated function to move all at once and to lock certain specific points down in space so that all the other ones can move from a stable base, which are, I think that pretty much covers the majority of what I'm looking for as just a generalization for people that come to me to start with. Those are the basics. The basics is just learning. Well, honestly, if I were to try and try and put it into a more like more succinctly for this, it would be I'm looking for their ability to move or not move on their own command. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And so now you said that that intent is slowly starting to to change, and I assume that. Um, you know, as you're growing as a coach, you're starting to see more and more advanced people um, come onto your roster, mm-hmm. and uh, and so you're probably the first block is probably a little bit more um, geared towards optimal bodybuilding training. No, actually, no, no. Oh. Um, the trend that has changed, even though I have gotten more advanced trainees to follow in and come into the group, yeah. the majority of the time that first block the same intent is there because well believe it or not i mean especially i've learned this and solidified this because this was a belief i had that i didn't have completely solidified until i had moved away from new york and the environment that i was in for training and the observation of all the other trainees in the area there and moving here to florida and seeing all of the people here at revive gym you know all the monsters that are here and getting to poke and prod a couple of them around. My training partner, uh, Jordan Vanderflyer, you can find him on Instagram too. Uh, watch what both of us are doing in any one given day for training, if that interests you. Subtle plug for, for my guy. Uh, <laughs> but I can use him as, as a good example here. Um, he's 29 years old. He's been bodybuilding for forever. And he's middle of the road type national competitor. And when I showed up, I mean, I didn't know the guy before I even came to Revive Gym. But when I came up, uh, came up here and started working with him, we just got a couple training sessions in to start. And literally every single movement, everything from deadlifts all the way down to bicep curls, 
were screwed up. <laughs> so what I've started to see is that these really, really like these bigger guys that do have the experience and you would consider advanced trainees. Like I would consider him definitely an advanced trainee. Yeah. At the point that he's at, but also he's a complete rank beginner at the same time. And what I'm starting to notice as I'm here a little bit more and I keep my eyes open to it, almost all of the guys that you would consider advanced trainees have a lot of these same base issues as rank beginners do. Because yeah. in most cases, once you've gone through the beginner stage and you've gotten the movement patterns that you were trying to learn down to a degree that it's operable, after that point that it's operable, it doesn't change. And they just continue with that beginner level pattern if they're not a really movement quality oriented type person. And in most cases, most people do not have the background to know what they're looking for, for them to be a movement oriented person. So when, and I'm not trying to say that like guys at a higher level, just like throw caution to the wind and they don't care. And sure. it is what it is. And they're trying to move weight around because that's not the case. Even right. if they believe in themselves and one of their like their tenants or their qualities that they try to keep in place is their ability to move well and do the movements properly, even if that's part of their intent, they don't exactly know what to do to make that happen. And as long as they're not in pain, they don't really notice that there's a problem. Right. So a lot of those same people, uh, to bring us back to the original question and the reason I brought this up in the first place is that from what you would consider from looking at somebody or looking at their training age, uh, being a beginner, you know, moving from a beginner into an intermediate stage, a full intermediate, intermediate to advanced stage and advanced, they all have the same movement-based issues. Yeah. For the majority. And of course, there's going to be anomalies where there's somebody that just shows up one day and can pull a perfect deadlift off the ground with an obscene amount of weight and they've never done it before. Right. And from the time they first picked it up to the time they last picked up the barbell, it's going to be the exact same and it was beautiful from day one. There's always going to be those people. But for the most part, you don't see that. And people's movement quality is usually trash. And that's not to throw shade. That's just, if I were to say it in a nicer way, almost everybody has a ton of load left to put on a bar, a lot of efficiency that if they make up the gap on, they could be unbelievably stronger than they are, much more capable, mm -hmm. a lot less hurt habitually, able to yeah. do a little bit more quality work, a little bit less total work, and they'd be a whole lot more fulfilled by what they're doing because they're not going to have to keep patching holes in the ship that's always sinking. Yeah, so, I agree. I agree with you. So with the initial training cycles, when I have anybody show up, really, the only difference really that comes up in that initial training cycle, whether or not it's a more beginner or advanced type person, is how much extras I give them. The extra mm -hmm. being okay. stuff to make it hard. And that's because of somebody's training age, like just literally for that reason alone, where somebody that's a real beginner if I just give them a good, a well-designed program that has base amount of volume and part of the learning process, and this is also part of it that I didn't mention, part of the learning process that I'm trying to work through is teaching them how to apply themselves, not 
just to do the movements, but apply themselves with enough intensity in every working set that you're limited in how much volume is useful to you. Where if you don't have that learned skill of being able to apply yourself, you could do volume until like the day is over. You've seen three suns come up and you're still doing bicep curls. Right. Okay. You'd be okay. If you have absolutely horrible connection, you have horrible movement and you just do not care enough to put in the intensity to do it well. If you do it well enough, you're accurate. The intensity of effort is accurate and you take it all the way to the end of what you actually have the capacity to do, you get a set, two sets, maybe three sets, you're pretty much done. Beyond that point, you're kind of spinning your wheels and not getting much more if the intensity is high enough. Right. You're just digging a bigger hole without any more benefit coming from it. So, and that's not like, that's not a cardinal rule where like past three sets bar none on everything is no longer useful. Like that's just an example. So for people that are a little bit more advanced, I give them a little bit more of the hard stuff where I want them to bleed a little bit because that's what they want. Right. I give somebody that's more advanced that has gone to the depths before, whether or not they did it, you know, to the standard that I would want to see it or not, they've still had the ability to take it there. And if I just give them something that appears to not be really intense enough for them, that's a big turnoff for somebody that does come to you like looking for something crazy. So being cognizant of not just the ideal programming to give somebody, but also trying to make room for preference mm. because that being able to push yourself while being in a balance of everything else is something that, you know, you can put in there and it may not optimize the program for what you're intending to do at the time, but who cares? Yeah, got to enjoy your training a little bit, right? Yeah, you got to have the person enjoy it. They got to have something to look forward to or else the result that you're getting from your ideal program in the first place, I, I air quoted for everybody listening and not watching. Right. Um, <laughs> so air quoted on ideal. You could optimize or make a program ideal for somebody, but if they're not excited about it and they're not like drawn to doing it, you're going to get a lot less of the result from that as opposed to giving them something that they like to do, making some concessions where you have to and where they have to so that you can come to a middle ground that's still effective and you program well, but you also give them things that they really look forward to doing, then you're going to get a whole lot more out of them from start to finish regardless. So based on their training age and what they come to you already having done, that will guide what that first block looks like. Yeah, that makes sense. And essentially the process remains the same for everybody. So because I'm still I'm still looking through all the movement patterns, still trying to get them to, you know, trying to figure out what kind of a routine they need to be in for them to get their movement quality down. So with mm -hmm. looking at the movements, looking for all the weak spots, what we can't fix with cueing or time or practice, then we fix through other methods trying to get at it prior to as preparatory work or post as something to follow the work or, you know, doing a different pat like different patterns of movement that are going to allow you better access to certain ranges of motion at certain joints that will get you primed and ready for doing a larger movement that is going to require those things anyways. So like moving things around, programming differently and trying to learn what is needed for that individual is what that first month is. So, okay. yep. Awesome.
Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> and as a client of yours, I, I, I think it worked well. Passed. I like it. <laughs> I, my stamp of approval. Pass. Definitely. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> also, I like your mug, Nick. By the way, for those of you guys who can't see, it's a UFO. Oh, it's a Rick and Morty mug. Yes, it's got even better. It got yeah. even better. <laughs> I didn't see those guys in there. Yeah. Brandon, did you see when we both chaotically picked up our oh yeah that happened on the wrong side i didn't we i didn't both, notice that we both picked up part. a mug without using the handle i just i all i know is that we both went for that coffee at the same exact time i don't know if nick saw that <laughs> that was really no. weird though we were like literally same time and then we were both like <laughs> Uh, right. <laughs> uh, well, I can still only see one of you at a time. Oh, <laughs> oh really? Yeah. And then, like, the other one of you will show up for like 30 seconds and I'll get used to it. And then one of you will disappear. And I'm like, okay. Oh. So. <laughs> We're just testing your train of thought and how well you can keep it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'd say so. Yeah. No, that was, that was really well answered. Um, Definitely. Brandon, I'll, uh, I'll let you ask another one because I know that my questions alone could take up two hours yeah you can build a, we can build a lot off of brady's questions mine are more so like little uh tidbits little snackums as we like yeah, to call well, them um, we can drop them in between the big ones exactly yeah um so <laughs> still in the um realm of training here um what are the factors that dictate hypertrophy that is a that's a, a that snack is, a little bit more than a couple snackups. <laughs> we'll try to make it a snacking question. All right. Oh man. So, are you asking me to go and redo the Brad Schoenfeld uh, study of the mechanisms of hypertrophy for you? I or? remember reading that like three yeah, years, right. four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what um, you're? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. And we'll see if you, if you want to like go off in any other area. Go ahead. Okay. So you have mechanical tension muscle damage and, uh, metabolic, um, what I guess no, I wouldn't call it metabolic damage. I always say this, um, accumulation. I uh, we'll go with that. That's good yeah. enough. I, I always misplace that word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> great. Uh, it was also fleeting me as well. Don't worry. Yeah, really well on me, but it's okay. I got um, <laughs> so those are the three main uh, contributing factors. So basically the three main pathways, the applicable pathways of you actually achieving hypertrophy. That's how you get there. So of those three, there's, it's not as if there's three branching forks in a road and you have to follow one entirely or another entirely or another. And that also doesn't mean that what you choose to do with the programming of an exercise or an entire session or a block, or there you go again, two of you, now one. There you go. <laughs> Try and figure out why. <laughs> Um, Brady's a tech guy. You are the tech guy. Figure it out. <laughs> um, Probably just connection related. Maybe. Um, so it's not like there's three forks in the road and you have to follow one in entirety and leave the rest of them. You don't have to walk away from the rest of them to have one of them work. And mm -hmm. all three of them really all work at the same time, regardless of what you try to do. Unless you take yourself into the extremes where you can kind of isolate away some others and overemphasize another in favor of that and away from the others. So like for, for hypertrophy, really, uh, for the kind of training that we're going to do, we're not going to stray into the extreme 
that is going to lead us towards only mechanical tension too far. We're always going to have the other two present because of the fact that we're never doing something that's really, I mean, in most cases, I can, I can say in almost all cases, you're not going to see hypertrophy programming that has reps less than four. Mm. And that's the case. So if you're at a loading, uh, a loading level that is going to bring you there and you're going to end up failing within four, you're really not going to have enough time or enough contractions really for you to build up enough. Um, you're not going to accumulate enough uh, metabolites for you to get that pathway to really get pushed far. So you're not going to get fantastic adaptations in that realm from doing something that's that low. You get above that, you get into a little bit more of a typical bodybuilding range between six and 20 is pretty typical of most programming aside from some stuff that goes really high rep, which is there's a place for that. And there's a place almost in every program for that slightly. Um, wow. You guys are really testing my focus here. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Skype. Skype is really testing my focus. Incredible. Yeah. Two stars after this. You hear Incredible. That? Um, so when you get into more of a typical range of loading, you're going to see that all three of them are going to be present regardless of what you do. You push a little bit higher on the reps, you're going to get a little bit less of the mechanical tension. That's going to be a little bit less of the contribut uh, contributing factor and a little bit more um, metabolic accumulation is going to be the primary adaptation, the primary direction that brings you towards hypertrophy anyway. Um, but even still, if you're coming all the way to failure, you're going to get to the point where the loading relative to what force you can produce by the muscle at that time is still going to create damage, is still going to have enough perceived mechanical tension that it's going to be effective for that as well. So trying to divide them up to understand the mechanisms that are involved is helpful just for the understanding's sake and just so that you know that there is a way that you could overemphasize one or the other or the way that you get towards one is slightly different than trying to isolate into another can be helpful for uh, for programming but overall you're hitting all of them on a pretty consistent basis no matter what you're doing as long as you're in a typical range of loading and a typical proximity to failure that most bodybuilding programming would follow mm. so and then beyond that point just pushing all of them is trying to get more load for the same amount of reps or more reps which is you know, the basic tenets of what we already try to do, whether or not you understand the science of it. So, I mean, the normal bro is going to want to lift 225 on bench for one more rep this week than last time. Yes, he will. It's, uh, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty simple. It doesn't, yeah. have, it doesn't have to be complicated, you know? Mm, so yeah. really lifting weights can be as complicated as we want it to be, as complicated as we'd like to make it, to make ourselves feel like we're smart. But we are indeed not the smart people of science. So there are, yes. there, are, there are smart people in science. This is true. We are not the smart people branch of science. No. no. Yeah. So there's smart things that you can say about it, and you can recite an entire physio uh, physio physiology textbook if you would like to. How much that's going to make you better than another person at doing the thing of lifting weights up and down and getting bigger? Not much. <laughs> Probably not much. Yeah. 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 You might Do you think that the 
Do you think the knowledge of this stuff is beneficial for people to know, though, to kind of understand why they do the things that they do, the the behind the scenes work? Absolutely, because it it guides your decision making. Yeah. You have to prioritize one thing over another or you have limitations in one way or another. You can figure out what avenues are able to be pushed and you don't get into the trap of being or having to catastrophize over having a problem show up. Mm -hmm. Because if you understand enough, then you can manipulate what you're doing to a degree that you actually know that you can still get effective work to happen. And you can emotionally detach from what it is that you habitually have done to go down a slightly different route to continue chasing further adaptation without having the issues pop up from having being limited by something else. And it also takes away some of those limiting beliefs that sit underneath you know, all of our thought processes anyway. And especially when you get emotionally attached to something like we do with training because it matters to us more than just moving weights up and down. When you start to build an emotional connection with what you know is the thing that you do, um, if you don't have any other influence that gives you another perspective to look at the thing, then you're going to be so attached to the way that you do the thing that you're going to be unable to, too emotionally invested to decide to listen to another perspective search for more information to understand better, to do a better job and to improve it. The only way that you're going to look towards improving is going to consistently be just what it is that you can make work within the paradigm that you've already always done. So having the information is always going to be helpful in that sense. For sure. And it stops you from being as easily misguided. Yeah. Definitely, it opens up the doors. It opens up more doors for you, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And as long as you, you're willing to keep your eyes open to look through the door as it's opening, you're good. You don't always have to walk all the way in. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. being the guy with the biggest brain in the gym doesn't always mean that you're going to get the best results for yourself or everybody else. So trying to always be the smartest guy in the room is a good pursuit is going to add up and make you a little bit better at what you do than somebody else as long as you continue to apply it and try to make that the point of learning instead of just cramming more information in for no real benefit to anybody but your own ego really to say yeah. this thing or know this thing and yeah. and that's honestly what what happens in most cases where especially in our field because there is such a, a low barrier to entry and the information is so accessible that you, you can have a lot more people that are more into the, the egotistical search for information so that they could make a snarky comment on a post somewhere or yeah. write a backhanded <laughs> story or something like that about something that they know, but somebody else got wrong or something like that. And it's just, it ends up being just a huge like egomaniac pissing match. Yeah. You're like a, uh, like you take a kinesiology class and you're like a movement specialist now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Movement specialist. <laughs> the deadlift specialists that are out there. Yeah. Uh, Brady, would you like to chime in? Do we do we beat that horse? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna ask a question specifically about um a piece of my training that we went through. Mm-hmm. Um, so on this podcast, we've talked about my diet phase before and kind of what was brought along with all of that. Um, so I wanted to ask a specific piece of my training that changed while I was dieting. Mm-hmm. Um, about halfway through the diet, we switched to a higher rep range in almost all of my movements. 
um, versus we went from, you know, six to eights, 10 to 12s to 10 to 12s, 15 to 20s. Yep. Um, what was kind of the, the backing behind that or, or what was the intentions and, and goals of, of doing that when we made that switch? So in most cases, it's not something that would be advisable um, to continue to push up rep targets while dieting. In my opinion, at least, it takes you away from the, the loading ranges that you do the primary amount of work on or within for the rest of your year. And if that's the case, then you're asking for problems to start popping up where you start getting really, really dieted and start losing tissue because you're not hitting the loading as effectively as you could be. However, with the prior phase right before you started dieting and into the diet phase, we were doing more strength-based work. So we were at a lower range. Being as consistent as we were through that, we were pushing up against the same strength barriers the whole time. Okay. And we had kept ourselves away from doing the higher rep target stuff for a long time as well. So there was adaptation left on the table. There was an opportunity for you to gain the skill of being able to do all of those movements at a higher rep target and continue to progress within that. Where continuing to push on the same loads at a six rep or an eight rep was getting to the point where you were just spinning. Yeah. Not getting much more. And as the diet was going to continue to get more intense, it was going to get much, much harder for that to continue. So partially as a mental thing, taking you away from having to bash your head against the same wall week in and week out the whole time. Yeah. Is good for you being able to just get yourself focused and to do the thing because yeah. you're going to be more excited to do it because it's a new challenge. Yeah. It feels like I can make ground on something. Yeah. 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 And as you're going through a diet phase, your shape is getting better. So your cardiovascular shape and your ability, your cardio endurance is getting better. And as we weren't very practiced with doing high reps on anything by that time, you had a lot of ground that you could make up in that direction. So you were getting into good cardiovascular shape, but we weren't really getting your rep endurance up because we weren't putting you through that training. So there was a huge opportunity for a lot of progression, like right off the front. So that was going to give you a good bump. That was going to make you feel pretty good. It was going to give you something to focus on. And every single session you came in, you could get another rep. Yeah. So having the fact that you had progressive runway easily to be made there, and there was a good like there was a good running start on it that was going to give you enough of a stimulus anyway that and the novelty and your ability to, uh, to progress for multiple sessions consecutively forward through the week two weeks three weeks four weeks without too much struggle and pushing up against a barrier having that being the case making that decision was pretty easy because you weren't going to lose any tissue as long as you were progressively getting better at doing what you were doing okay you were continuing to go and hit failure at the higher rep targets. And it wasn't by efficiency. It wasn't by you having a technical failure and having to stop in most cases. It was you yeah. taking it as far as you could after you learned how. Because there was a, yeah. a learning period there where you were having to stop because you just didn't have the technical proficiency to do that many repetitions of a compound exercise. Yeah, definitely. You got that out yeah. of the way. <laughs> Yeah. Fortunately, we uh, we had just enough time in the gym before lockdowns happened <laughs> where I could run that first block. Yep. And then, uh, 
and then we had to switch everything up. Yep. And then after that point, that was also part of it. So once we got into the phase where everything had to be barbell work, basically, yeah, there had to be some decisions to be made there. There wasn't going to be a lot of opportunity for you to get like in by that time, you were pretty dieted. And yeah. by that time, your ability to continue to get bigger loads moved at a lower rep target was diminishing fast. Yeah. Okay. So compound that with the fact that you have no access to anything really that is going to take any sort of stimulus away from you. You don't have the opportunity to load a muscle more directly without having the rest of the system being involved. Doing everything with a bar makes it so every single movement that you do is a compound lift. If I had tried to put in the, uh, the rep target paradigm that you're doing a six to eight or even slightly lower, because in some cases, diet phase, it's helpful to have stuff that is lower so you can continue to get enough mechanical loading so you don't lose any tissue. Trying to do that at that point, while everything is going to be a compound movement, is waiting to get wrecked and just beaten down so hard that your training would become useless soon after. Yeah. So it was, it was a calculation of sustainability. It was a calculation of looking at how much progressive runway was available and looking at and critically thinking about how much, how much of a loss could you really take on the muscle tissue side of things on, I mean, considering the fact that you're going to be progressing through rep targets over and over and over again for weeks. How much are you going to lose because you're not doing a, a six rep? Minimal, if anything. Not, much, if anything. <laughs> not yeah. much, if anything at all. And if it's going to be any different than what it would have been if we just carried the lower rep targets all the way through, there's no way to say, but I can't imagine that it, it would have been significantly different whatsoever. Yeah. Because look at what the training phase that followed that, what happened there? We went back down. Yeah, but we split yep. the rep targets, right? Yep. Yep, so we did. We split the rep targets. We still had, for the first time then, a full split. You had a full yeah. split of rep targets. So you had built the ability through the uh, last period of the diet of getting really good at doing higher repetition work and getting really efficient at doing so. So technical failure was no longer what failed you by the time you finished your set and then brought you back to doing heavier loading work as well. So you now had the ability to hit both of those and progress on both at the same time. And since lower rep targets were going to be what you, you gravitate towards anyway, and you would enjoy more and you were good at to start with giving you the thing that we had to build the skill for you to be able to do at that point through the diet phase and then to come out of it. We had that and your primary skill, your primary ability to move big weights, have them both at the same time. Now there's no learning, uh, learning curve to be had after the diet phase was done. So it's also making the calculation of what are we really dieting for? Because I wasn't dieting you for a show. Yeah. I was dieting you so that we could have a good springboard for us to have an off season. So going through the dieting phase, looking at the training, I wasn't only thinking about what was going to be best for the training during the diet phase. 
It was going to be what's going to be most helpful for us when we go into the phase we're really doing the diet for in the first place, which wasn't for the diet's sake. So do that learning process, get, get it out of the way while your progressive capacity was lower. So primarily you were learning a skill, you were learning efficiency. Mm-hmm. You're getting technically proficient, and then you were gaining the ability that you already had latent in you, but hadn't expressed yet. You establish that, and then I bring you back to doing movements with your primary skill of doing heavy shit, and then add that in with the new one that you just gained and got proficient at. Now you have the perfect springboard program to start off once you have calories in. And it all connects. It all comes together. And there you go. It's a long game. Yeah. (laughs) So to say that programming, programming for hypertrophy isn't just purely programming for hypertrophy. Trying to program for any one specific phase of a year isn't just programming for that phase. It's always thinking about what surrounds it and what it is that you can, like what levers you can push up and down at what time for you to have the best forward result over broad time. Not being super, super tied up into what has to happen right now. It's what has to happen right now for the later to go well. Yeah. Gotta be two steps ahead. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotta try and try and, uh, do some big burn stuff. Do some, you know, multi-level chess. Right. That you can, you can, you can get away with doing checkers in bodybuilding, but you could do a whole lot better, especially with people that don't have the genetic makeup to play checkers and win national level shows. Right. And then go above that with really having no skill or understanding at all, other than move thing up and down. Right. <laughs> Taking people that really do need to have a little bit more of an intelligent approach in applying that in the best way that you know how, looking at the broad scale of time that you could possibly get them to progress through, put all the pieces together, you're not limited. You're only as limited as what that person is limiting themselves to with their effort level, their consistency, and how much they want to push on all the other parts of it that go along with it aside from training itself. So that's really where the limitations come in. I really like that uh, chess analogy. Yeah, that was good. That was dope. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. That was good. Of course, that's why I'm here. All right, hit us with a snack. I got this light that's just coming oh, right through my blinds. It's flashing me in the eyeballs right now. I don't know where to sit. There we go. Sit over here for now. All right. I'm stuck on two here. Still in the realm of lifting here. Um, barbells, dumbbells, and machines. This is, again, a snack or two. Um, how can we best utilize these tools while programming? And where do you see um, you know, programming a barbell versus a dumbbell or a machine over a dumbbell of some sorts? Okay. So um, as a broad category, I would place barbells and dumbbells in the same category. Cool. And I place machines and cables in a second category. Um, and then, of course, those implements have specific things about each one that makes them more suited to one thing or another than the other one would. 
but to have them broadly separated helps for just the initial consideration of how much output are you trying to get out of this implement for this exercise at that time. Barbells and dumbbells, you're going to get a significant amount of output from that movement because you have the opportunity to do so. And it's requiring most of your body, if not your whole body to do the thing properly to start. So whether or not you choose to do a dumbbell incline press or a barbell incline press comes down to some other select decisions that need to be made to decide which one is going to be the better option for that time for that person. But the broader decision is whether or not you want to do that movement as a primary movement on a free weight, a barbell or a dumbbell, or doing it on a machine or a cable. That's the first decision-making tree. Whether or not you're looking for the maximum amount of total systemic output or more localized output and trying to isolate it to that alone. And then deciding from that decision tree, moving down one, going to whether or not you are mechanically restricted by a barbell or not in the movement pattern you're trying to do. And whether or not the barbell is going to be more efficient for the goal or a dumbbell would be. And then moving from that point, there are multiple other decision trees going down the line trying to figure out exactly which one is going to be better for the specific thing that you're doing. But primarily, I would look at how much output are you looking at is going to be the primary question. How much are you trying to get? If you're trying to do something for primary output, think about a barbell in most cases. You're going to move the most load throughout most of your patterns with a barbell as opposed to dumbbells. If you're looking for the most output, you're going to want to do a barbell RDL rather than a dumbbell RDL. Because one, you're going to be limited by how many plates you can put on the bar, which is a whole lot more than how big your dumbbells are in the gym. So you're going to get better output that way, and it will make some mechanical changes that will make it even more difficult with the barbell than the dumbbells in the first place. Okay. So there are smaller considerations like that. There's also going to be whether or not this person has a functional or structural um, boundary that places that, that is between them and their ability to do a thing with a certain implement. Okay. So if you have a structural or functional disability to be able to do something with a certain implement, you use the other. Simple as that. If somebody has a problem with trying to do a barbell press of any kind, a lot of times that's because of a lack of control or access of the shoulder. And then the following issues that go distal to it or, you know, closer to the center, whichever place that it's actually stemming from and all the following issues that follow from whatever it is, if it can be remedied by having access to a more free range of uh, rotation at the shoulder and having more free access in space to each side by itself, and that fixes your issues, use a dumbbell. Don't use a barbell. <laughs> So just easy example, barbell incline press, hurt your shoulders, try it with a dumbbell. Dumbbell not hurt, thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> like that, that's, that's, that's really as simple as it can be. Yeah. And then looking at it as trying to see, like, again, the primary question is how much output are you looking for? How much output are you looking for? So if you're starting off, you're trying to hit your base patterns in every single program. 
you want to hit your base patterns always. Now, you look at how much of those base patterns can you tolerate doing as compound movements? How much are you capable of doing? Can you do for, I don't know, like a push session, if you're trying to hit chest, shoulders, and triceps, and trying to hit compounds for all of them, do you have the output capacity and the recovery ability to do a barbell or dumbbell of a chest compound, of a shoulder compound, of a tricep compound? Do you have that ability? Do you have the ability to show up and perform for all three being a free weight compound and continue to perform, continue to press forward and recover to do it again in a couple of days? Can you or not? Question. Yes, no. And then you look at from the yes, no, what gradation do you have to look at to, for you to fall into the Goldilocks zone of what it is that pushes you, but you still have the capacity to perform and recover following? So then you titrate, like you still have to hit the base patterns. You, that's non-negotiable. You're hitting the base patterns no matter what. But how it is that you address those patterns is going to be specific to what output you want to allocate to what. Do you want to make your chest compound your primary? And you only have the ability and you know that you can only perform well and recover from doing one as a real true compound. And the rest of them have to be replaced with something else. You have to do a variation of those other two compound movements, which are going to be compound presses. If you only have the ability to do one well, perform and recover, then the other two need to be hit in another manner. Do you have a machine to do that? Do you have cables to do that? Then you use those. Yeah. Hmm. Programming is just one big flow chart. It's a whole lot of things. It, it's, you can slice it up and dice it in any way that you want to conceptualize it, really. It's, it's such, it's free-flowing in a way that you can categorize anything in any which way that you like. You can create your own paradigm in any way that you want. And more or less, it's, uh, unless you're just completely shooting in the dark, you're going to land on some sort of a helpful structure for you to figure things out with. Yeah. It's... Like I, like I keep saying, we're not the smart people of science. Like as, as far as especially in the hypertrophy realm of things where you get into like for specific strength and conditioning for sports and things like that, it gets a little bit more science heavy. Hypertrophy, for the most part, is arbitrarily science heavy. Where honestly, for people that do real physical work, like actually trying to be good at a specific skill in a sport setting, mm -hmm. you could you could go deep, go real deep. Hypertrophy, those people would tell you at a high level, hypertrophy basically isn't even an adaptation. Because the the way that you could click the hypertrophy button, you could run at it from every angle. The button is so big that you could run you could literally just fall out of the sky and hit it. Yeah. Like it's not it's not a small or intricate target to hit. You're not trying to land the single laser beam in the Death Star to get hypertrophy to happen. It's not right. <laughs> not it. It is not it. You are just throwing stuff at a barn door that's ten feet in front of your face. Yeah. Do you think so. we're we're kind of 
at least it seems like the industry is slowly transitioning towards this whole science backed thing. And, you know, earlier we talked about chess versus checkers. Do, do you think that we're getting too complicated about hypertrophy? Yes. That's the whole point of what I just said. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and like, and that's not to say that like being intelligent with your approach is useless because obviously like I just talked for what, 20 minutes on why I decided to give you higher rep targets during your diet. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. So you can get as complex as you want to with things beyond a certain level of complexity. It's no longer helpful, but there is a prerequisite amount of complexity that goes into this because the systems that we're working with are within a threshold of being complex enough that you need to have a decent understanding to manipulate it well. Yeah. But also the button for hypertrophy is so big and evidenced by how many people that don't know a damn thing can get huge, super strong. Like genetics are obviously a factor, but sure. Even still, people with somewhat mediocre genetics that are never going to step on stage to be an Olympian, you're just average gym bro that literally knows nothing, can be like a a local spectacle because it's just a huge, strong jack dude that's just a big old meathead that doesn't know really anything. Those people exist, and there's a ton of them. Mm -hmm. And then there's a ton of pencil-pushing trainers that – literally look like the heaviest thing they've ever lifted was a clipboard that can fit <laughs> off every chapter from start to finish of a physiology, uh, applied physiology textbook. And it gets them nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's the two sides of the spectrum on that and everything in the middle still counts. So there is a prerequisite amount of complexity that should go into it. You shouldn't be completely downplaying it because I, I personally get very irked and annoyed by people downplaying it to a degree that it's just lifting things up and down. Because yeah. although it is lifting things up and down, it's a little, there's a little bit more that goes into it than just that. Yeah. But also, if, you're, if you require that there is three meta-analyses done in the last year on a certain topic – that all came to the exact same conclusion for you to say that anything has the possibility of existing or being significant enough to like design your philosophy of programming around you've missed the boat too. Yeah. Which is another gripe of mine where it's the evidence based community, which is something that I have, I have complained about on every podcast since I've, ever started being a guest <laughs> on podcast ever. <laughs> and then even long before that, when not a single soul other than my mom and my dog would like my Instagram posts, <laughs> I was still screaming from the rooftops the same things. Yeah. It's the evidence-based community has quickly became in orthodoxy instead of being actually evidence-based in going with preference anecdote 
and science being the things that decide your like what you do, it is now only science. Yeah. And that's it. Like that's the only thing that is accepted as a modality or a method of deciding what you're going to do with your training with the quote unquote evidence based community, or there are some in a smaller sect of them, which are all about preference and preference guides the whole thing, which goes down an entire other rabbit hole of a whole bunch of other types of people that are not even really a part of the bodybuilding world, but a part of the fitness world where it's all about just feeling great about the thing that you decided to do, which good for you. But if you want to be mediocre forever, continue doing only the things you enjoy exactly as hard as you feel like you want to stop before anything ever challenges you and then decide that you're still going to be as body positive as ever. Like great, not my cup of tea and trying to push forward a message that being continuously and never ever deciding that you need to reach for something I don't think is a productive way of trying to teach people that fitness is you deciding to do only what makes you happy. I don't think it's productive. I don't think it's helpful. I think it's misguided. And I think it's leading people to, even though it pulls more people in because they're less intimidated, I think there needs to be another step beyond it where you don't just placate to what people do or do not want to do, where you actually guide your decision-making on what you want somebody else to do as somebody that is an influencer, a, I don't know what to even call it. Um, I guess influencer works, but if you're like a trainer, a coach, a whatever on Instagram or putting out information of any kind, I feel like it's incumbent on you to not only play on one side of the field. Hmm. You should be paying homage to the other, like all of them. You should be able to say, no, like you shouldn't be doing this and that thing because there's absolutely no scientific basis of fact for that, even by mechanism that is possible. That's probably not the greatest place for you to put your resources into. Say that, totally fine. That doesn't mean that you're a science orthodoxist. Right. It just means that you're generally going by, hey, well, that doesn't seem like it's it's really got anything to it. Um, I think that my efforts are better placed somewhere else. Perfectly fair. Yeah. And then you go and guide other people to say, well, I don't really think that this is going to be that useful for you to put your time and energy into. You should probably go this route that has a little bit more backing to it has some mechanisms and some applied research to say that this is generally the route that you should go. Cool. Great. Yeah. But then taking it to the extreme of no, there hasn't been a direct applied RCT on this with these exact things that I want to see to confirm my beliefs or deny my beliefs for me to make a decision on. So therefore this is the only thing that matters and only thing that works. And I'm going to die on this hill for it. (laughs) which is basically what we're seeing the most of right now. And then there's all three of the hills, preference, science, and anecdote, and everybody wants to decide that they want to stand swords drawn on the hill that they decided that they're going to die on, and that's going to be the battle that they're going to fight. When the whole point of being evidence-based in the first place is being able to look at all three and then, you know, go and intermingle with everybody that wants to sit on the hill. Right. Yeah, that's Best it. of all Learn hills. from each other. Yeah. Yeah. 
learn learn from everything that there is to learn. Yeah. learn try to gain perspective from everybody that's seeing the ground from a different perspective than you. You try to create a more cohesive view of what is effective and what works for what people at what time and what circumstances. Because we, we all like to, this is another trend where it's everybody's an individual. Cool. Yeah, nice. we are. We're also all human beings. So also we, all the same. <laughs> we are so much, we have so much more in common than we have different. For, even with the people on the sides of the spectrum of humanity that are the furthest away from each other, we have much more in common than we have different. Yep, yeah. So the, the over-individualization of everything is ridiculous. And in my opinion, it's all stemming from the same group of people that are on the preference hill that are really, really about not hurting anyone's feelings or trying to treat everybody like they're so specific and different that the approach that you need to follow doesn't need to be like anybody else's. So you don't have to compare to anybody else. Right. Which is honestly where I think a lot of it comes from. Cause it's a, it's a combatant idea away from social media culture where you're being exposed to a whole bunch of people that are doing things that you might not be able to do or are not currently doing. Or if you are doing it, you're always going to feel like you're doing it in a lesser manner because they're, you're seeing a highlight reel of the person in front of you that is doing it. Right. So as a combatant to that, it's no, you don't have to squat because you're a special snowflake and maybe your special, like your, the branches of your snowflake aren't built to squat. Squat, right. <laughs> or you're not built to deadlift or you're not built to bench, or maybe you just haven't taken the prerequisite time to figure out how to move your body and you're just trying to find the easiest way for you to not fess up to the fact that you have no movement skill, no bodily awareness, and you have a lack of the drive to go and learn that or find somebody that will help you to do it so that you can actually do the goal of what physical training is supposed to be to be able to move well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Instead of having these arbitrary objective goals that you're trying to hit, which honestly, like in most cases, most people don't reach in the first place. So like... Okay, you want to lose 20 pounds, so you start doing physical activity and training. Cool. That's a good goal to have. Not yeah. poo-pooing on that. But if that's the only objective goal and you're going to do anything to get there, although part of the sentiment of trying to get there is, yeah, you're going to have to make some sacrifices and do, quote-unquote, whatever it takes. But at the same time, you actually have to do whatever it takes. Any avenue you take to get there is going to decide how much longevity you have in trying to reach that goal and how long you're going to take for you to maintain it, for you to move forward beyond it. And if you don't have the wherewithal to think about a long game, then you're just going to be pissing away time from now until forever trying to chase one objective goal you never truly reach because you don't have the prerequisites for you to continue on towards it, which is knowing how to move your body and what's actually important in having done it. Yeah. So everybody's an individual. Everybody requires different things, but everybody's a human being. Everybody requires the ability to be able to move well and to respect basic life circumstance habits for you to be in a good position, for your body to be healthy enough for you to continue doing the things that you need to so you can get to your goal. Mm -hmm. Like improving function, 
was like personally speaking, like I was someone who had a like squatting was a pain in the ass. Yeah. And I didn't think that I was built to squat literally. But, yeah. I, you know, after we've, we've worked together and we've in, we've in, implemented a few preparatory uh, exercises and things like that and the counterbalance squat night and day difference. And like it happens to a lot of people, like you said, like it's not so much the movement as much as it is the function of the unit that you're trying to move. Like I've had a lot of people come up to me and say that they'll never be able to deadlift because the deadlift just doesn't treat them right. When in yeah. reality, I think it's it's more so if a function problem, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. In most cases, it's just not having gone through. You. There's a – just a second. I'm refilling my coffee. <laughs> Turning coffee it off. Break. Yeah. All right. I'm good. Um, in most cases, yes. But the way that I'd like to say it rather than being nebulous in the fact is saying that it's function that needs attention – the way I'd rather say it is there's a checklist that needs to be ran down step by step of all the things that need to be done for you to move well. And for you to actually know whether or not at the end of it, if you have a checklist and then you get all the way to the bottom and there's a yes or no. There's a checkbox, yes or no. Can you do this thing? Yes or no. You have to go through the list of prerequisites and check off the boxes until you get to the point that you can check off the yes or the no. Nobody knows what that checklist is filled with. The majority, nobody has the idea. They just think it's a yes or no at the bottom. Mm -hmm. They're only there to check the box of yes or no. They don't know any of the parts of the checklist that go into deciding whether or not they truly yes or no can do a thing. Yeah. And so it's really, really easy for you to latch onto the idea because it's so – it's screamed from the rooftops – from the top of the hill of the preference people and some of the science people, which is incredible yeah. to me. Um, <laughs> Just a couple. That, no, you don't have to do this thing, which is still a true statement, but you don't have to do this thing because guess what? You're a special individual and yeah, some people aren't built to do this thing. But people take that as, okay, I couldn't do it on my first try. So I'm not built for this. That's not be it. No, because there's either a functional or structural barrier to you being able to do a thing. One of the two. That's it. Function or structure. If it's structure, you have the ability to outfunction bad structure to a point. Hmm. So what for Brandon, you squatting, and even you Brady. Neither of you guys are, quote-unquote, built to be good squatters. You're not. You don't have the leverages to make you, like, dropping straight down, torso all the way up, super high bar, just squatting it down to the floor without any issues. Like, you're not built like that. Yeah. You're not. It's just, it's plain and simple. It's the truth. As Kev would say, I'm built like a daddy long leg. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you are. Um... So, and that's most people. Most people are sitting in the range of the spectrum of being able to do it perfectly on the first try without thinking and not being able to do it whatsoever, no matter what you tried. People sit in the middle somewhere. And where they sit in between those two is different between the person. But to a degree, unless you are all the way on that tiny little edge of that bell curve, 
saying that I literally structurally can not do this thing. Fair enough. Fair enough. There are some people in truth. There are some people that just have the perfect storm of horrible, like anatomic placements of all the things in all the lengths of all of the things in the, just there, the entire system itself is not built in a way that it's actually conducive to doing the thing. And to the point where you literally could not try a single thing that could make it work. They exist. Your femurs, your femurs just like half the length of your entire body. <laughs> <laughs> or three times. Yeah. Right. More, three, more like three times yeah. the length of every other body segment. Yeah. That would be a problem. That would be a problem. Yeah. But so most people, when they hear, because because it's such a common thing to be told or to hear or to see somebody post that, no, you don't have to do this thing because maybe you're not built to do it. It's like you're talking to like 2.5% of the human population. there. Right. If we're speaking bell curve terms, sure. you're speaking to 2.5% of the population when you say that. And maybe that somebody in that 2.5% population saw that and was like, you know what? Thank you. Good. Somebody told me like it's okay. Yeah. And that's that's totally fine. But if you're talking in a broad sense and trying to generalize, most of the people in the middle that just have a lack of function to be able to get around their lack of function or their lack of structure that is going to make it easy to just do it intuitively, those people are going to co-opt it and think, oh, I'm just not built for it. Hence the reason why, like you yourself, Brandon, said, I just thought I wasn't built to do it. Yeah. At one point in my life, I thought so too. Mm-hmm. I was that guy. I thought literally, like I'm just not built to squat, and like my my femurs are a little bit longer. And believe it or not, even though squat is like my best movement, it doesn't really mean anything. Mm, yeah. So, um, go ahead. I I think I pretty much made my point. Okay. Um. So. Briefly on that, um, if someone doesn't want to get a coach, I'm yep. creating like the worst scenario ever. Someone doesn't want to get a coach and their squad is not working for them. How long should somebody be banging their head against the wall trying to figure out how to squat or, you know, any, any movement that's not working for them? before they decide to move it to something else, you know? Until they figure it out. (laughs) Seriously. Um, And I mean that because, uh, well, I'll say this and I'll continue the analogy. You can try and keep banging your head against the wall of the question of, can I do this or not? So trying to figure out standing over the piece of paper with the checkbox of yes or no. And just trembling, trying to figure out which one, which one, which one. And the next rep or the next set of every time you attempt it is you just standing over the piece of paper with your hand trembling, trying to figure out like sweat on your brow and everything like cracked out of your mind. Like, oh, my God, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe one more try. Maybe one more. (laughs) It's It's not giving you anything. You need to know what the checklist is. Yeah. So if you don't have a coach and you don't have the body segment lengths and all like all the things that go into whether or not you anatomically are well suited to it, if you're not anatomically well suited to do it, 
then intu like intuition is not going to help you much. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to figure out how to up your ability to function so you can overcome the bad structure. Yeah. And if you don't know the checklist of what it is that actually makes up all of the check boxes to get there, then you're just hitting your head against the wall for no reason. So yeah. if you don't have if you don't have a coach and you're not willing to get a coach, you need to at least be like digging in to figure out some some things about yourself. Try to learn from somebody at the very least to see what actual considerations go into your ability to function at every single joint that's involved in doing a thing. And yeah. that's and this is honestly this is probably like this is the biggest sell for having somebody to get a coach that actually knows what they're doing as far as movement goes because everybody could use it. Yeah. And if you want to go the other route and you just want to have control over everything that you do, but you know that you have some issues with trying to make things work, you're hitting your head, you're hitting your head against the wall for no reason. And if you would like to just take it the hard, like do the hardball way, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to learn stuff. Right. You're going to have to sort through a ton of information. And if you have no basis for that information in the first place, you don't have the, the foundation structure of what that information really like, how it fits into the scaffolding that creates a cohesive idea and philosophy about it. Then you're going to be, it's a long road. Yeah. It's really, it's really it. It's going to be a long road for you to figure it out. Gotcha. And so, if you're, but hold okay. on. If you're, okay. <laughs> you're, used to, you're used to this by now um, <laughs> i know <laughs> he said but wait there's more yeah so and then further than that if you don't gain the ability to do base function patterns just being able to do a hinge well from any any position in any sort of variation if you don't know how to squat well with really any position or variation you can't do horizontal or vertical pressing or pulling in whatever pattern it is that you decide is going to be your primary pattern that you focus on. If you're not able to do those things, you put yourself onto a machine or a cable or something that ob like obviates away some of the things that would be required for you to do them well as a base movement. You just are, you are stapled only to doing that one thing with that one implement that worked. So you're, by the definition of it, you're limiting yourself on how much range you have laterally to move when things no longer work. And eventually there will be a point where things will no longer work. And you need to go another route and you have to address some other things and you need to expand your abilities if you're just able to do the thing with one implement, one way, because it's the only way that you can get it to possibly work. If that's your foothold into making it work better overall, so that you can gain access to do other things and move laterally from that, cool. For example, if you have a horrible time with doing like overhead pressing. You just can't do it with a free weight. You just lack the ability because you, I mean, structurally pretty much everybody is okay. But functionally, that's one of the biggest issues almost nobody can do well. So, Instead of just being pigeonholed into only doing overhead press on a machine and you're just stuck on it forever because it's the only way that you can get it to work. If you use it as a gateway pattern and you get practice being there, but you keep on doing other stuff that puts you in a similar analogous position 
that will then start to take away some of the functional barriers of you being able to get into an overhead position with the arm with the shoulder in a stable position and the rib cage not compensating. You'll get better at doing it. And eventually you'll be able to move laterally away from that and you'll have the ability to do the thing. So if you're looking at it that way, instead of just dropping yourself into one thing that you made work in trying to drive that into the ground for forever and having no other options, acceptable. But trying to already take the route of, okay, I can get output on this thing, but I can't get it with anything else, that's already a problem. And if you're not looking at it as a more long-term solution of figuring out how you get that problem to go away, you're going to have a problem that's already a problem turn into a big problem later when you lose the access to doing the one thing that did work, which mm -hmm. eventually will come if you don't address it as a gateway to opening up other things in program and do other work for you to gain the access to that after having done the work there. Cool. Yeah. So. Um, could, Brady, if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. Could we segue that into um, using belts and external things? Sure. External accessories like belts, knee wraps, sleeves. Sure. And particularly in the scenario where maybe someone is struggling with their squat and they're just looking to load up as much as they possibly can and they want to use a belt so that they don't fold like a lawn chair, what would you say to them? I would say that the belt isn't going to help you not fold up like a lawn chair if you're already going to fold like a lawn chair. But what if I can get 10 pounds more? <laughs> sure, but my argument is if you never use a belt in the first place, you're going to get to the same place anyway eventually. Yeah. And how much more is that 10 pounds in any one instance going to help you? I don't think all that much in relativity. It's your progression from one spot to another that is going to help you to progress in your physique. Mm. Yep. Not the sheer amount that is moved. The sheer amount has an effect without a doubt. But if you're always performing and you all, if no matter what, you're always doing belt on a squat or a deadlift, then your constant performance is always going to be five, 10% above what you could do without. You've already bridged the gap of the, that progression that you would have had between doing it beltless or with a belt. And then from that point on, that's your baseline. What matters? How much above that baseline can you push through and continue to assimilate into your current baseline? That's what determines your progression. That's what changes your physique. Mm. If you're always sitting at that 10% above what you could do without, you're still in the same place as if you didn't use it. Too much. Really? So, um, for other tools aside from like a belt, it's a similar thing, but it changes a little bit the way that I see it when you use knee sleeves or knee wraps. Yeah, I can understand that. So, and especially because I, this is a little bit of a personal thing for me as well, because I can stand as a case study myself for the fact that you don't really need a belt. I know. That's what I literally say. I use you as a precipice. I'm like, like literally verbatim. I'm like, if I, if I, if I know someone that can put 600 pounds on his back and not fold, you don't need to be folding 
with 200 pounds on your back. Right. (laughs) Just, there it is. No. So, I never started using a belt, so I never needed to use a belt. I am not dependent on the tool to be able to do the thing, which is, it should be the way that you look at all of these external tools. You should have the capacity to do the thing that that thing is trying to help you with doing, whether or not you have that tool available. You shouldn't be dependent on a belt to lift weight. Right. You shouldn't be dependent on a belt to create enough intra-abdominal pressure and brace well enough for you to not fold in half. This should not be a problem because what is a belt actually for? Because a belt isn't, it's not a physical obstruction, even though that's what most people would consider it to be. They treat it as if it's a physical barrier, a physical obstruction to them folding, trying to hold their back together, safety for their back. That's usually the way people look at it. That's the complete opposite way to look at it. It's, it's another physical wall that acts almost as if it was another layer of abdominal tissue. It's another physical barrier for you to brace harder into to create the effect of intra-abdominal pressure to put something in the dead space between your spine, your pelvis, and your rib cage. So when you have something that a force that is trying to pull your rib cage into your pelvis, you have something in the way. You have a pressure vessel that limits how much you can get folded over. That's what it's there for. That's what the belt is for. It really only gives you another five to uh, five to ten percent total ability to move weight as a function of giving you the ability to brace that much better because you have another physical barrier to create pressure. That's it. So it's for it. But if you can create adequate pressure that you don't get folded without the belt, you don't need the belt. And if you're not a power lifter and you're not concerned with getting the maximum amount of pounds moved for this movement at this time on a platform right now, and you're going to be judged against your peers for how much poundage got moved in space, you don't need the belt to inflate your numbers 5 to 10%. Yeah. You don't, because like I said, what matters is how much you're progressing from baseline and how much of that excess performance above your baseline you can assimilate into your baseline. That's what matters. That's what progresses your physique. Having that extra 5 to 10% from the get-go and always there doesn't help. Cool. Awesome, dude. Hmm. Well said. Yeah. For, like, for things like sleeves and knee wraps, it's slightly different. Um, so yeah, because, I think... I'm sorry. because the knee is a joint of consequence and not a joint of direct function. The what happens at the knee is dictated by the joints that surround it that have greater access to ranges of motion and rotation. So the ankle and the hip. The knee moves as a consequence of the direction that those two interfacing with each other decide that the knee is going to go. And the knee has very little ability for it to decide where it goes itself. It also is going to be subject to a lot of forces. 
in which a lot of people, when you get an injury, a sports-related one, get them at the knee a lot of the time. So that is also a reality. And most people that actually do li lifting didn't only start with lifting. They came into it with something else. They started somewhere else. They have residual issues from doing other things. For most athletes in every single sport, the thing that gets beat on the most is usually the knee. Yeah. So that is a consideration for people that, act, that still want to perform in weightlifting in whatever sect of weightlifting that it is still want to be able to do the thing in the safest way that they can and try to avoid some of the issues from excess forces going through the knee. And if you can parry them in one way or another in the uh, position that is going to be the most, not most likely to injure, I will not say that because that's not true. Where a sleeve or a wrap is going to help you is not in the position that is most injurious for the knee. The position that is most injurious for the knee is actually within the first 30 degrees of flexion. From a straight leg. Can you say that again? The position at the knee that is going to be the most injurious is going to be within the first 30 degrees of flexion. So really, it's barely bending your knee. Most ligament tears, especially within the knee, happens at an almost straightened leg. Rather than being in the very bottom of like a deep knee flexion position. Very, very few injuries happen there. So, and is there a particular reason why? Yeah, it's it's the dynamic of the lig uh, the ligaments. Okay, and yeah. is it like they're in their lengthened or shortened positions? Um, relative to one another. So, um, depending on the position that the knee is in, and this is the same for every other joint. Depending on the position that the joint is in, one ligament is going to be more uh, the primary thing that takes forces in that position or not. So there are going to be some ligaments in the knee that are going to take more force at one position rather to another. So in knee flexion, in the arc of flexion, there's going to be different ranges within that arc that each ligament within the internal knee is going to take the most amount of tension. Or they're the closest to their max tensile strength. If they're the closest to their max tensile strength and there's another direction of force that they're already being exposed to in the direction that they're supposed to tolerate, and then added to that is another direction where it's not really intended to, that's where an issue happens. And at the speed and intensity that that other force comes in, yeah. or the initial force that is in the direction it's supposed to be, if, it, if it's excess beyond its actual tensile ability, its ability to hold its position on the structures that it attaches to, gone. Yes. Um, so that's an aside point. But... When you get down into the very bottom of a squat, uh, squatting position, so a deep knee flexion position, your, that's the position where a lot of people feel pain in the knee. It's not the place that's most injurious, but a lot of people feel pain there for whatever reason that is. And there's a ton of different reasons that people may have knee pain there. And a lot of times it's not due to a structure issue. A lot of times it's due to a function issue that happens at literally any muscle group that you could decide to pick on yeah it's so hard it, to pin yeah so in a way it's almost useless to try and decide what muscle is going to be the limiting factor or what creates that because there's so many of them and it's an integrated system of whether or not you have beyond a certain prerequisite of function at the hip the muscles of the hip and the leg and then the lower leg and the ankle and the foot 
whichever system it is that is causing a primary issue, there's going to be a feed forward and a feedback throughout it, and that may cause an issue that you have a tightness or something that causes pain within the knee. Okay. But that's another side to say the point being people have uh, some issues in the bottom of the squat, typically. Having a, a knee sleeve on, a knee sleeve is really only there. It's not for warmth. I want to get that out of the way right off. It's not for warming up your knee. If you're training in a garage in, I don't know, anywhere cold, I'm not even just going to say the United States. So if you're in the North right now in the United States or you're in Canada and you're training in a barn, sure, knee sleeve is going to double as something to heat up your knee and that's going to help. Cool. If you're in a place that is actually a first world country that has the ability to heat a facility within the range that a human is supposed to be able to function within while not wearing full winter gear, <laughs> your knees are going to be well warm enough temperature wise for it to function properly. What it's there for is to reduce the ability of contact, uh, like the actual contact forces within the knee at the most deep uh, deflection position. It can reduce the patellofemoral contact forces and the tibiofemoral contact forces. You said it can produce? Is that what you said? No. Reduce. No. Reduce. It reduces the contact forces between the bony structures of the knee. It reduces the contact forces within the knee. Yes. How so? So in layman, in bro terms, it takes some of the pressure off the knee in the bottom. Okay. That's it, really. And how exactly does it do that? The bunching up of the surface on the back of your knee. Okay. So the the sleeve on the back, like on your calf, and the sleeve that's on the back of your upper leg, on your hamstring, as they crush into each other, the compression of those pushing into each other is what takes some of the contact forces off of the knee. Okay. Yep. Yep. So that's what that's for. And gotcha. sleeves, um, I would say for the deepest knee flexion positions are going to be where it's actually helpful. So a real squat or a hack squat, those are going to be the places that they're useful. Using them for everything that moves your knee around, I wouldn't say is all that helpful. Yeah. Okay. Doing a leg press, which is basically a half squat, not, not really helpful. Mm -hmm. not really, it's not really doing anything. It's not really doing anything unless it can reduce the contact forces at the knee, which will only happen in the deepest point of flexion. Wraps, on the other hand, is a whole other tool, and that's a whole other conversation. So, and then there's a whole debate of whether or not they're actually helpful for hypertrophy or not, which I would say that they are in limited sense. But we don't have to get into that right now if you, you guys don't want to. Um, I had a question about the uh <laughs> the introduction of those tools yeah when when do you think it's an okay time to introduce sleeves you know yeah. as someone who's scoring two plates 
if versus, there's yeah, yeah go ahead i already got you i already got you <laughs> if there's already an apparent structural need mm. okay. yeah i know that you were in a little bit different of a category nick because i know that you talk about the guy. yes yeah yeah so if there's already an apparent structural issue that it could be helpful to use them start whatever Sure. Um, but if it's a function-based disability to be able to do it, then address the function. And usually it's both. Mm. Primarily function. Yeah, primarily function. I feel like um, function is a big problem for a lot of people. Yeah, basically the biggest one. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, but to continue with your question here, Brady, um, a sleeve isn't a tool that I would look at as something that, that necessarily you need to breach a certain level of loading to warrant using. Sleeve doesn't fit that category in my mind, really. Um, it can help you a little bit with how much load you can tolerate and how much you can do, but the artificial inflation of how much that can do for you is not much. Okay. Um, for wraps, that's a different conversation. Right. For wraps, kind of hard to say because I don't like to be mean. Um, in a general sense, in in other ways, I'm I'm a little bit bitter. In, <laughs> um, just my general resting tone is somewhat snippy and irritable about when. <laughs> Talk when I talk about the industry because immediately that comes to mind is all the thing, all the things, and all the people that do all the things in a way that I don't agree with, and I'm just like, yeah, mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hitting, the, hitting that red button for me, just get me going. Um, yeah, sorry, so, no, it's okay. it's okay. Um, this is how I am on every podcast I've ever recorded, Brady. It's not new. Um, so looking at knee wraps as a different tool, if you're, if you're not, okay, so a decent wrap job with a fair pair of wraps that you didn't get off of Amazon for $9. A decent pair of wraps with a decently tight not all the way tight, not because that there's a difference there too. How tightly you wrap your wraps matters, especially when hypertrophy is concerned. So if you have anybody that wants to uh, talk about whether or not wraps are helpful for bodybuilding or whether or not they just starkly are not helpful for bodybuilding, there is a difference in how you wrap and how much you can actually get out of wraps. And if your entire argument is that it's, for hypertrophy, you don't need to lift the most amount of weight possible by any means necessary, and that would be your qualification for not using wraps, then you just clearly do not understand the fact that there is a gradation and there's a method to using them that doesn't give you the maximum amount of pounds that you could get out of the tool if you decided to. So if you're a power lifter and you're using wraps, you're going to wrap them so tight that before you can even get yourself to stand up, standing up is also a problem at that point. Um, before you stand up, 
everything below your wraps under like under them and below is either ghostly white or purple because of the lack of blood flow you're in excruciating pain you just you already you feel like everything below your knee has been shot off with a shotgun and you're just walking yourself under a bar and hoping that you could just stand it back up. So in standing up, even if you're if you're powerlifting wrapping, you're you're using pliers to be able to pull that last wrap through because you've tightened them down so hard and stretched the wraps so tight that you literally cannot, even if you tried the hardest you possibly could weasel a finger underneath your wrap to be able to pull the last wrap tie through it. It would be impossible. Okay. You, yeah. you would also be unable to move your legs. Meaning if you can wrap them and you can con like contract your hamstring, try to pull your heel to your butt or to squat yourself down with your body weight. If you move an inch you have not wrapped it tight enough i don't know how you guys do that or they do that yeah so if you're, <laughs> seriously if you're powerlifting, that's how it is because they're trying to get them so tight that you get every single available pound possible out of the bar yeah yeah so you use the tool and you lean into it as hard as you possibly can to get that if you're a bodybuilder, though, you can wrap them. You can wrap your knees and still get benefit for hypertrophy because you haven't made it so tight that you're already artificially inflating the amount of load that you can stand up with in the in the top. But if your knees already are unable to bend to begin with, then you already need enough weight on your back to force your knees to bend. Yeah, shit. Okay. You're bodybuilding and you're wrapping it to the point where you have a little bit more tightness than you could get out of a sleeve, no matter how tight your sleeves are. You're getting more out of it. So you are getting some of the load taken off of you in the bottom, but it's not enough to take it away from you. Okay. You have it tight enough so that if you get if you do a bodyweight squat, this is how I do it. This is my method. If I wrap them to a point where I can't get into the bottom of a bodyweight squat. I've wrapped them too tight. Mm -hmm. I can always get myself down into a bodyweight squat. So how many pounds is it really adding? Not a ton. Not a ton. And where it is helping is at the very, very bottom. So the way I look at wrapping, especially for squats, is more like doing a reverse banding. I was just going to ask that if it had a similar kind of curve yeah. as, as doing a reverse band. Yeah. That's, that's the goal. I see it as a variation of a squat. Okay. Because is the loading parameters. Right. Because it's going to offload on you in the very bottom, and it's going to be as hard and as heavy as it could possibly be for the entire range of motion. Because it's really only helping you in the very, very deepest point where you're going to need the most help to stand it up. Right. And that's it. Anyway. Cool. Anyway. Um, to get away from that aside, if you're... If you're actually wrapping them to any any decent amount, you're going to get anything between 
50 pounds to, I don't know. I don't know what I want to put the top end at. 50 pounds of added load or just above 90. Yeah, plate or two plates. Yeah, a half a half a plate to maybe a plate and a half. Maybe plate and a half would be like yeah. shooting, high. shooting high. Um, yeah. you're also having a great day that day. Yeah, you're you're shooting <laughs> yeah. you're shooting a bit high for that. But that'd be about the range I'd put it in. If you are, if the wraps are doing half the job for you. A problem yeah so meaning if you're wrapping and your back squat is 225 it's literally doing half or better for you yeah you're doing the majority of the work if you're back squatting 315 it's still doing a great amount to a majority of the work, depending on how wrap, how tightly you wrap and what the quality of your wrap is. Yeah. If you're back squatting 405. Get in there. Quarter, <laughs> you know, 25, 40%-ish. Still wouldn't say that it's, it's a great idea at that point. Yeah. Five plate. Sure. <laughs> it's starting to get to the point where it's like it's doing 20-ish percent yeah. as a total of how much it can help. Cool. That's about that's about where I'd put the threshold. Because really when you look at it, you don't want to be doing the thing where like you're literally springboarding and that's all it is. Yeah. It's not helpful. It's not useful. It's not a tool that is necessary at that point. So once you get to the point where it's doing, you know, 20% or less of total total loading is what it's capable of helping you with, yeah. then I'd say it's it's going to be more useful. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a that's a good marker for people. Um, just to give them an idea of maybe they're implementing these tools to try and push totals or loads up um too early so that was that was good thank you yep yeah. i i would say that the the numbers change slightly for women just because the the absolute ceiling of loading is a little different yeah um but i'm i'm not going to go into that one too far we can just move on okay just got to throw that copy out in there yeah of course it because it, it, expecting a female to only start wrapping once they pass five plates is a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of a high bar. <laughs> that would be amazing. Anyway. <laughs> um so we've talked about it a good deal on this podcast before. Um, but if you can just briefly touch on what is, you know, top set down set approach and, and why we do it. Um, I think it'd be good for our listeners to kind of hear it from you um, and it'd be helpful for them. Sure. 
top set down set is just a general um, programming design of looking at trying to split your rep targets. So you have one that is of higher loading and one of lower loading. It's really as basic as that gets. But the way that I see a top set down set uh, type of programming style having its, its best utility is in teaching you how to apply yourself. Hmm. It's giving you two separate opportunities or more than two separate opportunities, but at the base minimum, two opportunities to put your all into what you're doing. With a top set down set, if you're looking at it as part of the like intensity first programming is what I consider it is what I what I refer to my programming style as. Intensity first That's programming. Good. Yeah, I like that. So when it's intensity first, we're looking at how is it that we get intensity to go as high as possible. And that doesn't necessarily mean load by itself, but load and effort intensity, both. We're trying to get the most out of it every time. And then all the other contributing factors, all the other variables, that can add up into a total hypertrophy program or into a total stimulus of hypertrophy, like volume, which is the other one that we can, I can't open up that can of worms because we'll be here until like 7 p.m. It's 2, yeah. it's 2 p.m., guys, now that we're, we're at this point of the show, and I will talk for a year on that debate, and I don't need to do that. Yes. Not, not today. Not this episode. Not today. Um, if you're interested in, in hearing my thoughts on that, uh, Luke Miller Half Natty Podcast, which is now the No Switch Fitness Podcast from a while back. Um, I think the first one that I was on with him, that's a good one to listen to, that talk, because we both go back and forth, and we are both very irked by that topic. <laughs> so if you want to hear those thoughts, go, go find that one. Um, so with intensity first programming, looking at it as these are trying, I'm trying to learn, teach, and make a priority the fact that you need to get as much load moved for as many reps possible within the targets that we've set in getting yourself to dig out every single bit of the intensity that you have the ability to apply yourself. You have two opportunities to make it happen. Two. Mm -hmm. it. And within those two, you have one opportunity at one load and one opportunity at another load. Those two sets, you're going to have to approach them slightly differently. They're slightly different goals. Slightly different ways of hitting, hitting the mark. So you have those two isolated opportunities for you to make this happen until the next time that you get the opportunity to do it again. And that is your limit. That is where you start. And until which point you can actually apply yourself entirely, get every pound that you can out of that set and every bit of intensity, effort intensity that you can out of that set up until that point that we look at intensity first, secondary is going to be the amount of it that you can do. Once you can actually hit and break through that bottleneck to start with of intensity being the thing that will stop you. You get past the fact that intensity is a limiter because you haven't maxed it out. You got to get through that first. Following that, you can add more work to be done within that same effort and intensity level. 
you add more work to it at the highest quality, at the highest intensity, then you have actual, you have an actual unit of work that you can quantify because you've standardized it. You qualified it, you've quantified it, you've standardized, and now you can add more units of it in its actual meaningful units of work being added. Whereas opposed to, in a lot of cases, in most cases, when you have a volume-centric approach, volume is the first thing. That is the focus. It's, I'm doing this amount of total moving this thing up and down for this amount of reps, for this amount of sets. Everything else is secondary to that. And what does that lead you to the most easily, the most intuitively? I have six sets of squats. So are you going to really give it anything near your best ability to do that work for the first four sets? Probably not because you want to survive all the way to six. Yeah. Or if you're doing a more haphazard approach, then you're giving yourself the opportunity to, okay, the plan is two sets, but you know, if it's not quite right, I'm going to do another and uh, we'll see how this goes. And, you know, I might just, I think I'm going to do four sets on this time, bro. Yeah, bro. I'm going to do another. I'm, I'm just going to do another. Yeah, set. <laughs> Some cases fine, but in most, that is just the easiest gateway opportunity for you to continue to sandbag and just make up with, uh, make up for it with more volume. Yeah. Instead of you just taking it to the house, doing it once, progressing, moving on to the second set, which is going to be a slightly different opportunity, slightly different approach to hit the mark. You give that your 100%. You leave it all there. If you did both of them to the quality that it needs to be, then you doing another set is just redundant. Because you've gotten all the progression you can out of those two. Yeah. Gave it everything. Hopefully, if everything aligns properly, you made some type of progression in one way or another. That, that would be the hope. Yeah. And then if you have some sort of a quantifiable or qualifiable progression on those two, and it's better than it has been in the past, what are you doing more for? That is both the evidence of you having made progress and the impetus of your future progress. Why do you need more? Until which point that it's proven to you that you do need more. And if you've already hit both of those sets and done it well, then you can continue to add more units of meaningful work if you have the ability to continue to perform and progress on more work that is done to the same quality, which is why it's intensity first and it's a top set down set, but it's not limited to only two sets. Right. It's never limited to only two sets. But there is a hard cap for a certain period of time until which point intensity first is broken through as a barrier of load and effort intensity. And then following that, then you can look at how much volume of it you could do. And if you're already able to progress with a top set down set in a two set manner, and you're still, you have ample ability to continue progressions in that same pattern, the same movement at the same rep target or a different one. There you go. Third set within a top set down set method. Yeah. Still, it's possible. Still works. Mm -hmm. You need yeah. to do. You need to do the work first. You need to do the first two, not weasel your way out of working hard and giving yourself more volume to just piss around and not doing it, do anything worth your time.
until which point you feel kind of spent, somewhat tired, and you know, I should probably move on now. Yeah. Which is how it usually goes. If you don't have the intent of, no, I'm going to bring this to the house, I have one opportunity to do it, and that's it. Yeah. Because if you actually give a shit, you're going to take that one to the grave. Yep. If you give a shit. If you don't, then you have two you have two sets for everything. It's a top set, down set. You're still doing 60% and then 30% of what you could actually do for your top set, down sets. And you just have the easiest workout of your life. Yeah. Good for you. Right. So, yeah. You can make it as hard or as easy as you want. Yeah. Yep. Starts in your head. Yep. Yep, and hence why people that get trained by coaches that are actually like they're actually part of this type of method and they gravitate towards this those people and those those clients those athletes can continue forward on that method and make progress where those same people if they didn't have a coach and they did just allow themselves to do the intuitive way of training which is the way that most of us started training in the first place is going into a gym, picking what you're doing that day and sending it for, I don't know, uh, I'm going to do this many sets on this today. And I'm going to go yeah. for, um, I'm going I'm to hit a one rep max on bench today. And then I'm going to do a bunch That's of pyramid today. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So those, those same people that don't have the guidance that don't get brought into that, they don't, they can't do the same program. If you had, if you just bought that program off of somebody that wrote it for you, they're not going to execute it the same way that somebody like you guys that have me to stand over you and tell you, no, 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 you got more in there. You could do better. Movement quality needs work. We're going to do this to help with that. And you're going to get better at this. And I'm not going to give you more opportunities because you only need the one and you need to apply yourself. Yeah. And then after that point, more work is more work is warranted. It goes in. But if you don't have somebody to stand there as the disciplinarian of it, it's really, really easy to just give yourself opportunities to be mediocre. And then it makes the top set downset method almost useless. Right. Because it's just it's just bringing your volume down out of a range that's useful because volume, yes, is important. So. But the aside that I said to go check out the other podcast and my arguments about the volume approach, volume is still important. My argument is whether or not volume is the be all end all. That's the argument. The quality of that volume. Yeah. Volume as a sheer number, it's going to be inversely related to your effort and load intensity. Yeah. So effort and load intensity is as high as possible the amount of volume that you can and should do is a lot lower. Mm-hmm. It changes where the bar is set. Yeah. But if you are, if you're treating your programming as if you are at the highest effort and load intensity possible, and you have the volume set in the place that would make that work, but you're also giving it the same effort and load intensity that you would if you were, I don't know, you're doing you know, a typical high volume program, you're going to get no result and it's going to be a super easy training program. You're going to suck. No, prog- <laughs> no progression. Will come it's true though. It's true. Yeah. 
It's true. And that's the misconception on it. Cause like the, especially in the, the realm of people that have bought it hook, line and sinker, that volume is the king and volume is the only thing. Volume by itself, meaning only repetitions done in total, useless metric. So it's better to have looked at it in a way that is a little bit newer, being the amount of hard reps done or the amount of hard sets done. More useful, but also not the full story. Because it's not looking at the actual that, that takes loading. That takes us back to the standing on one hill and dying on it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah it does. You know? It all comes back to there. Yep. Yep. There's... Uh... Multiple hills. Yep, and we don't need to stand on only one, and that's that's that's, right. that's part of my point here is that looking at it as trying to make one thing the most important as uh, relative to another, trying to make the most use out of what you have available is what should be important. Yeah, how do you get the most effective at doing the thing? Mm. Use all of the variables in the parameters that make the most sense for you to do so. Yeah. One method, the method that I subscribe to, the intensity first method, is a way to actually give yourself a standard of work. Yeah. And if you don't have a standard of work and what that means, then every single unit of volume without it, you don't have a way of knowing how much of an added set or an added 10 sets is actually helping you because it's not 10 right. standardized units of volume that you've added because the work quality isn't standard. Yeah. If the work quality is standard and you know, and it's bringing the standard of your work is high enough to the point where you do a, it's within such a tight margin of your ability where you add just a little bit more, it takes you over the edge of your performance and recoverability capacity. When you play this game and you try to make the variables a tight balance, it makes it easier for you to figure your shit out. Yeah. Mm. You have a whole bunch of variables that you have sitting in like the middle range. Like if you have a soundboard and you have all these toggle switches that you can put up and down. Yeah, that's how I view it. You have like a slide board of all of them. If you have them all sitting in the mid range, you can push any one of them up an inch, down an inch, here, there. If they're still sitting in the mid range, like what do you even know what's going on? You have no idea. Yeah. You were, you could push all of them somewhere, and it's really not going to give you a great indicator of change. It's not going to give you all that much. If you have something that is going all the way to the top, you're gonna know it. Yeah. It's gonna tell you. You're gonna know. So if you look at it in a way that you're trying to figure out, okay. How many, if pushing all of those slides all the way to the top is maximizing everything, the most amount of uh, effort intensity, the most amount of load, the most amount of total volume, the least amount of rest, like all of these things, you're trying to push all of them all the way up. You're going to way overshoot your end bottleneck of your performance and recovery capacities. You're going to redline it. You're going to go over. Your 100% is going to get breached. Yeah. Beyond that point, you're in a useless zone. You're not progressing anymore because you're doing too much and making things ineffective because you're doing too much. Mm. 
if you use a couple of those slides where if you have all of them all, all the way to the top, you're way overshooting. You can put one or two up to the top, maybe. And the other ones can still float around and you're not redlined. <clears throat> and if you use the ones that are going to bring you the closest to that red line, so you're moving from 0% of your total uh, performance and recovery ability to 90% of your total recovery and, uh, uh, recovery and performance ability, then moving those other ones around, you can make very slight adjustments. As long as the, the other two are mostly non-negotiables, you move the other ones around slightly, you're going to know when it's done something meaningful because it's going to bring you that much closer to 100% performance and recovery. And you're going to know the instant you've breached it. Mm -hmm. And then it's a small adjustment of one of those toggle switches, whichever one you choose. Yeah. And it could even be bringing one of the two non-negotiables, quote unquote, down a little bit to accommodate for another one, depending on what the situation is, which is also an acceptable method. You could do that, but you're always going to stay so close and within standardized units of that 100%. That it's easy for you to play around and figure out where you can sit so that you can keep traveling at a constant pace on an upward trajectory, moving towards your 100%, but never breaching it. Yeah. If you're playing with the uh, one of those toggle switches, one of those slides volume, and it's just moving an arbitrary amount up and down all the time, because the amount that is standard for you to do, like to move them. Or your hundred percent isn't standard because you haven't made any of the work volume like useful up to this point. You have nothing else standard. As soon as you move the volume up, everything else moves. Hmm. If it's not standard, it doesn't have everything else stick where it is. Then it just ends up being a useless exercise of trying to push how high it could possibly go, and then you overshoot eventually, but you don't really know until you see all the symptoms of having overtrained uh, beyond that point. Okay. You don't get slapped super hard off the front end. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, we're in two hours already. Uh, you want to answer one or two more? Or sure. How are you doing on time? Good. Okay. Uh, Brandon, want to hit him with a snack him? A little snack him. You got it. Snack him. You got it, boss. <laughs> All right. Um, so we've been talking a lot about training. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about, uh, not training. Um, <laughs> Nick, so kind of just going off, like I had said, off, uh, off the training wagon here, uh, meat protein versus plant protein. Oh dear. Which oh, is better. Man. Okay. Yes. We got the, all right, um, thanks, sit down. So, vegetable proteins, if you're super in-depth about them, and take you as a vegan. If you're a vegan, and you're trying to get everything, uh, all the protein that you need for effective bodybuilding, and you have no access to anything other than vegan sources. You are going to be playing a losing game. Okay, so not to say that you're going to be unsuccessful. 
because actually uh, we have a fellow team member who is vegan, famous Tim. Oh, <laughs> yeah, famous Tim. Famous Tim. Tim Cavanaugh, <laughs> the man. Um, so he he is vegan, and a lot of other people have been vegan and made significant gains before. Sure. Possible. Possible. The way that you have to go about that, though, is because plant sources of protein don't contain all of the amino acids that a normal animal protein would. You have to be very in-depth and connected with what it is of all of those that you need to get from what sources and how to balance them. If you want to maximize your ability to put on muscle tissue, being vegan or going with plant-based proteins, which is – this is not exactly your question, Brandon – but I'm just taking it to its uh, like extreme conclusion so that we can draw it back and make it easier to understand everything else. Yep, do it up. So really, it's, it's something that you need to be very cognizant about if you're going to do it that way. And there's really no negotiating outside of that fact that if you're not super in-depth about how that's going to work, you're going to be making concessions on how good you could, you could do this relative to your 100%. It's just... It's going to be what it is. So that's not to say that you can't do very well because you can. Um, there are some good, like uh, for the majority of the protein that you do get, because it's still going to be advisable to have a gram per pound of body weight, or at least a gram per pound of protein per pound of lean body mass per day. That's really hard to do as a vegan. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to do as a vegan. It's a lot of chickpeas. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It is a lot. And because all of those uh, plant-based uh plant-based foods that do contain protein that are considered high protein foods for vegans are not high protein foods. They're not. They're they're pr- predominantly high fat or high carb foods that also have slightly more protein in them than iceberg lettuce. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. So when that's your benchmark for high protein, like you're going to hit, you're going to go really high on total calories for you to get to the protein total that you need. So in that way, the easiest way to get, uh, get there is by supplementing it. For most. So with an amino acid. Amino acids or a high quality vegan protein. Okay. Which is like, it's an unfortunate fact of the matter. It's just if you, veganism is not a done well, it can be a decent approach to managing health. Yeah. It can be a viable option for some. Mm Mm-hmm. However, you need to be very cognizant of its downfalls. And you need to address those downfalls for it to be good for your health, just basic health. And beyond that, you need to realize also that it's not ideal. Not to say that it won't work, but it's not ideal for the goal of building muscle. It just isn't. So you're not going to find the ideal diet for a vegan that is going to be super, super balanced, super easy. Like it's not, it's not going to sit as naturally as a more balanced diet would 
for somebody that isn't vegan that's trying to do hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be the same. It's not going to be, it's not going to go that way. Yeah. It's just, just the reality of it. So for somebody that isn't vegan, having other sources, like having plant protein sources works so totally fine. But if you aren't limited to only plant sources, then the majority of all of your protein intake should be coming from an animal-based source because it's a higher quality anyway. And really it, it doesn't have to be your focus to try and get it from plants. If it, if it isn't a necessity for you to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you might as well use the better of the two options and lean into it. If you really want to get that best result. Yeah. So, and there's nothing wrong with being a vegan. If you just, you know, you like animals and, you know, don't yeah. want to be eating animals and things like that. That's totally fine. But yeah. if you're in it for performance and hypertrophy and putting on some muscle mass, yeah. meat protein might be the way to go. It's yeah. true that there's um, the is it true that the bioavailability the bioavailability yeah. of meat protein um, is better than plant protein as well? Yeah. And even if it is like a plant based protein, wouldn't it like it's still the quote unquote same protein? in terms of bioavailability and quality as a regular plant protein, or is it like that you would get from chickpeas or is it something a little bit different? It's a little bit different. That uh-huh. That's why you have to be cognizant of what uh, protein sources you are having as a vegan. Because having one thing that is considered a protein from one food isn't going to give you the same amino acid profile that, that another one will. And okay. the way the way the actual food itself and how that food is going to digest is also going to dictate like what quality of the protein it is and how bioavailable it's going to be. Okay. So what is labeled on your MyFitnessPal or on the package for the food that you're eating as the protein content may not actually end up being what you end up with by the end of it. And one protein, one gram of protein on one thing is not going to necessarily equate to one gram of protein of another thing. Hmm. Because just like we talked about, like the intensity, volume, and all that stuff with training, like you could label it as the thing, but you need to know like there's a deeper level beyond that thing as the label. Mm. There's other qualifiers within it that make it what it is. And if it hits the base requisite of being considered that thing, there's still some other parts of it that need to be considered that totally make up what it is. Interesting. So does that, those differences that don't necessarily get considered because they're looked at as one protein is another a one gram of protein in one thing is one gram of protein of another thing because it's still a gram of protein. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit different. And the differences between them is what determines whether or not one is more useful in one situation or another. Yeah. How it is that you need mm-hmm. to apply like the combination of whatever it is that you're doing to get the full benefit of what you're trying to get from protein itself. Yeah. Like I've had people come up to me and, and they'll be like, oh, there's like 26 grams of protein and like three servings of peanut butter. And I'm like negligible. Like, don't worry about that protein. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't, don't it doesn't really count. <laughs> I cannot stand that. Yeah. Oh, my God. It drives me crazy. Yeah. If it has <laughs> no. more fats in it than protein, it is a fat source. Yeah. It's a yeah. fat source. <laughs> right. Thank you. <laughs> so the that amino acids in just, like, a regular BCAA, is that technically not vegan if it's, like, pulled from, like, a, a meat protein or like i'm getting i'm getting very like i'm devil's advocate here just yeah, like, I, I would 
I would say it depends on how starkly vegan you are. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is there are people there are vegans that can take it that far, I guess. But I was yeah. just wondering. Yeah. I mean some some people won't care that much. Yeah. They'll just they're just like vegan as far as like the food choices that they make, but supplementation they just really don't they're not bothered so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um it just depends on how far you take it. Um, whether or not you want to make it like a real category of one thing or another, like if you could, yeah. If it came from an animal, it's not vegan. I could see the hardcores doing saying that it's like, oh no, this came from an animal, so therefore, you know, yeah. Now all the all the vegans that are like drinking aminos are like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, by, by the facts, <laughs> of it, yeah. I mean, if it if yeah. it comes from an animal, yeah. yeah, it's not a vegan. It's not vegan. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's just the truth of it. But it depends on really like what what it is that you want to like what hill you want to die on again yeah yes like if you really want to taste there and you want to die on that hill mm-hmm. sure yeah but it's also extremely hard to find amino acid supplements branch chains or essentials or any other free form amino acid that isn't based from an animal i was gonna say i don't think i've seen many vegan amino acid no, commercials yeah. lately yeah <laughs> commercials yeah we we see <laughs> we see a lot of <laughs> what was that instagram ads you mean yeah that's... yeah that too <laughs> commercials it's funny you see more commercials for pharmaceuticals than you will oh you know? my god yeah. oh yeah <laughs> we're not going there we're not going there we already spent three yeah. hours with that yeah. yeah, so that's another story for anybody that's uh, still actually listening to this at this point. We already recorded a podcast earlier this week that we're not airing, that we were talking from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. <laughs> um, <laughs> that we're, it will never see the light of day. Yeah, yeah that one's in the dungeon. Yeah. Locked away. That is that is a dragon. <laughs> yep. Maybe like years down the road, we'll pull just like a little clip from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Quick. All right. Clip. Um. Well, I gotta eat. You probably should eat, Brandon. You might as well eat again. I should eat just because <laughs> I need to eat. <laughs> One forty-five this morning, though. So good. Nice. Hey. He's getting big. <laughs> <laughs> like wait <laughs> oh so yeah operation, well, operation unshred the capo has been that's right been like four years yes <laughs> but this is the year 2021 there's three packets for the boys there you go all the folks listening it's for you yep. so so we'll wrap up uh nick it was awesome having you on uh, we'll have to have you on again because there's plenty more questions to learn about all of the hills that can be yeah, died yeah. on. All of the hills. <laughs> um, do you have anything you want to say to anybody before we close out? Hmm. Uh, not necessarily, no. Um, if you want to learn more about me and what I do and all the stuff related to me, go to my Instagram. Um, it's all there. I mean, you can you want to see all the things I'm affiliated with, go to my link tree in my bio and just go check out whatever it is that you want to go check out. If you want to work with me, the coaching application to the Camp Jansen website is there. Um, all of my affiliate codes to in athlete codes to everything else that I'm a part of is also there. So if you're looking for uh, strength unit uh, training gear, 
hit that up. If you want Cam Jansen training gear, hit up that. If you want raw nutrition products, hit up that. If you want revive training uh, uh, supplements, look at that up. There you go. So oh, it wasn't revived. <laughs> yeah. ev- everything else that you could possibly need or want to know about me or from me or want to reach out and have a conversation with me, go, go for it. And that's going to be the easiest place for you to find me. So that's really it. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Um, for anybody that's made it this far, if you give us a like and subscribe on the video or rating and review, we'd greatly appreciate it. It helps us um, work through the algorithms. Um, you know, leave us a comment on what you thought and how you like Nick and uh, maybe somebody else we should bring on the podcast and we'll, we'll try and get them on. Um, but other than that, I hope you guys have a lovely rest of your day. Uh, train hard, do some cool shit, and uh, get it done. Hey, hey. All right, everybody. It was good chatting. Peace.